Well, good evening. Greetings to each of you again in the name of Jesus. It's a, a blessing to be here together. I trust that uh, our time together will be profitable and uh, not only here, but for eternity as well. As I said last night, I would like to begin the look at, looking at the, the names of God tonight for just a brief uh, time here before the main message. And I would like to say that after uh, this, I would like if the song leader could lead uh, 495 again. Now, if you're like me, uh, you probably never noticed the different names that were used to identify God in the Old Testament, unless somebody brought it to your attention. Uh, we read in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And, you know, we think of God, the, the creator. That's who he is. Uh, I never thought about the name. I guess. God to me meant the supreme being, uh, the sovereign creator of the universe, and I probably couldn't have even put it together that well. Uh, for many years, I really didn't notice the, the all the variations of the names used for God. In our English Bibles, there are four uh, primary names used for God in the Old Testament. Uh, there, there's several compound names as well, and we'll probably look at one of those the last evening. But each of these names has a special significance, and we'll fi also find that as the names are revealed to us, there is something additional that we learn about God. And so, uh, as we look at this, we'll find more about God. Now, my name is Roy. I was named Roy because my parents liked the name, not because of any special uh, meaning the name may carry. When you say Roy in my presence, well, I will assume that you're, you're either talking to me or speaking or talking about me, one or the other. Uh, but names in the Old Testament uh, carried more significance than that. And these various names for God uh, say something about him. These words identify characteristics and abilities that help us to understand who he is. Uh, in the original Hebrew, these words, and when we look at these words, they're in the English, they're close together. In the Hebrew, they were... Uh, for the most part, very different. Uh, the first one in Genesis 1.1 is Elohim, translated God. That's the Hebrew. Uh, the second is uh, listed in the uh, English as Lord with all capital letters. Uh, then the third is El Shaddai translated in the Old Testament as God Almighty. And the fourth one is Adonai, which is translated Lord with uh, lowercase letters, capital L and lowercase O-R-D. So I said they're, they're somewhat similar, and, and they are. Uh, the circumstances associated with these names uh, help us to understand the significance of these names. So for tonight we want to begin looking at, we want to look at the, uh, the, the name for God, Elohim, which is used exclusively in the first chapter of Genesis. It's used 30 times in that chapter. Uh, it's used over 2,500 times in the New Testament, and it's derived from a shorter word, uh, just El, uh, which is used only 250 times, also translated as God. El 
the, the name El would carry with it the understanding of mighty, strong, uh, prominent. But because of the exclusive uh, use of this name, Elohim, uh, in the creation story, we understand something about who that person, that Elohim is. Uh, it carries the idea of creativity and governing power. Uh, the idea of omnipotence, which means he is everywhere present. And sovereign, which means that he is, has all authority. He spoke and things happened. Uh, that is our God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It was as Elohim that God established the covenants with Noah. God spoke to Noah. Uh, it, it's Elohim spoke to Noah. And he made the covenant with him. He also made the covenant with Abraham. And so he is a covenanting God. Another interesting as uh, aspect of this name is that it is sometimes used in the plural form. I'd like to look at Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, uh, verses 20 to 27. And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life, and the fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created whales and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let fowl multiply in the earth. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beast of the earth after his kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let us make man after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. We read through the first, uh, the first number of verses there. It was God was creating. He was doing it. And suddenly he said, uh, let us make man in our image. Uh, that word Elohim is plural in nature. From that we get the idea of the Trinity. Uh, we can go over to Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. This was um, after the fall, and uh, God was uh, setting. He he cursed uh, he cursed the snake, and he put the curse on Adam and Eve, and so forth. Verse twenty-two, and God and the Lord God said, "Behold, the man is become as one of us." Uh, there again, we have that plural form. Uh, it is Elohim that is speaking. And he's saying, man has become as one of us. You remember Isaiah when he saw that, uh, that vision of heaven. Isaiah 6.8 And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? 
then, I, then said I, here am I, send me. These passages provide for us the scriptural foundation for the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, uh, would indicate that it was God the Son. I'm going to turn to that just briefly here. It was God the Son that was there in the beginning creating. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of, the men, of men. We understand that to be referring to Jesus Christ. Uh, and it was Jesus Christ, part of the Godhead, part of the Trinity, that was doing the work there in the beginning. It, it's just a fascinating uh, look as we uh, consider all this. It was as Elohim that God gave the first promise of a Redeemer there in uh, Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 where he put the curse on the snake and it said uh, no I should be able to quote that. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his, his heel. Uh, let me get it here. <coughs> and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. There, that is considered the very first prophecy concerning a Redeemer. Uh, there was the promise that God, there was going to be a redeemer for those who, who fell. And so we have Elohim, the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe, who covenanted within himself as the Trinity and also covenanted with man to uh, provide a redeemer. And as we read through the Old Testament, you know, we read God, we read God, uh, and we tend to think just, well, that's, you know, that, that's our God, yeah. But there's so much more tied up there in it. Uh, so tomorrow evening, <clears throat> we want to look at the second name uh, that's revealed to us in the book of Genesis. It's revealed in Genesis chapter uh, 2, verse uh, 4. The, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heavens. There is something more that we're going to be learning about our Creator tomorrow evening. Okay, shall we have the song at this time? In the message this evening, I would like to explore the doctrinal basis for our Anabaptist understanding of salvation and our Christian experience. Anabaptists over the centuries have been accused of not having a theological basis for their mode of worship and practice. Uh, and we must admit, we don't have any great theological works with the depths uh, and scholarship of many of your Protestant denominations. Some time ago, uh, in the World Magazine, I saw an ad for the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary that read, Pastors need more theology, not less. That's why when many seminaries offer faster, easier, simpler, we embrace deeper, richer, and stronger. Is what our pastors and our churches need, is that what our, uh, what our pastors and churches need? More theology. Greater scholarship. Now we have to acknowledge that we benefit greatly from the study and scholarship of people of other denominations. Strong's Concordance is an incredible help in Bible study. 
Uh, Vine's Dictionary of New Testament Words is another invaluable resource. These men were not Anabaptists. But is a complete understanding of all the theological nuances of Scripture necessary for us to be victorious Christians is the question that, I, that I'm asking tonight. Uh, can the ordinary believer in Jesus Christ know God's will for his life just by reading the scriptures? Martin Luther proposed 500 years ago that salvation is by faith alone. Leaders, church leaders from that deducted that if salvation is by faith alone, then it's absolutely imperative that we believe the right thing. Uh, so pastors need to be thoroughly trained in theology so that they can teach their people to believe the right thing. Uh, as a result, correct doctrine has, uh, has become the focal point of salvation. But Paul wrote in Romans 10.9, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. End of story. There is the gospel in a nutshell. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. As... As important as correct doctrine is, does mental assent to correct doctrine always result in holy living? For you parents, when your children know what is expected of them, do they always do it? <laughs> we all know the answer to that. And we all know that just mental uh, assent to correct doctrine does not result in holy living. Uh, it aids it. I'm not saying that. But uh, there not, must be more than just a, a correct belief. It is not necessary for us to have a complete understanding of all of the theological nuances of Scripture in order to experience Christian victory, spiritual victory. Because Jesus has given us very clear instructions on how to live the Christian life. It's obedience to the will of God as revealed to us in his word. It's as simple as that. You know, Mark Twain, who was not a godly man, is quoted as saying, it isn't the things in the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the things that I do. And you know, there is enough in the scripture that we can know uh, that uh, tell us how to live. God is not as concerned, uh, God is not as much concerned about what you know as what you're willing to do. If your faith does not move you to action, we need to question your faith. You know, I'm, I'm coming to the same place in regard to prophecy as well. Uh, I don't believe that anyone is able to explain exactly how all the end times are going to play out. But there is enough given for us to know that Christ is going to return, and we better be ready. Uh, we also know that the period of time preceding his return is going to be especially difficult. Uh, we know that all mankind will be judged according to what they have done in this life. And those faithful to the Lord Jesus will live with him for all of eternity. And those who have rejected him or have been unfaithful to him will spend an eternity in hell with the most miserable company imaginable, the devil and his angels. Let's be ready. We know that much. Again, if your faith does not move you to action, we need to question your faith. The early church, the first 200 years of church history, the, the early church did not focus 
uh, did not dwell on theology. They said, this is what the Jesus and the apostles said, and this is what we will do. Uh, that is where we need to come out as well. Are all things, are there things that we don't understand? Yes, there are. Uh, if we understood everything, God wouldn't be necessary. Uh, but he has given us, in his word, everything that we need to know in order to please him. And he has made it simple enough for the most uneducated to understand what is necessary to please him, and complex enough that the most educated will not be able to uh, figure it all out either. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. One verse I want here. Uh, verse 6. I hope that you have this verse memorized because it's a very important verse. Hebrews 11:6. But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. In this verse, we find two primary uh, things that are required in order to please God. The first is faith. We must believe that he is. Now, what is faith? Webster defines it as anything believed. Complete trust, confidence, or reliance. So we must to have faith, we must believe that he is. And that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. It's not enough just to believe that he exists. Even the devils believe. Uh, they understand who he is and they tremble because they, know, because they know who he is. They also understand that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And the flip side of that is that he punishes those who rebel against him. And they understand that very well. They understand their final end, what is coming. Romans 10, 17 says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Part of faith is believing that the scriptures are indeed the word of God. And it reveals to us the will of God. It's part of faith. Hebrews 11.3 Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. We looked at that. Uh, Genesis chapter 1. God spoke. Uh, we read the, the creation story. We believe that God just spoke it into existence. God wasn't just a creative individual who found new ways to use uh, what, he, what was at his disposal. He created. Things came into existence that were not there before. That's faith in God, to believe that. Because it's beyond our comprehension. Because this world doesn't operate that way. But God is beyond. God is the creator of all things. Through faith we believe that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Again, through faith we believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, those who are faithful to him. And so our faith is revealed when we believe what God tells us in his word and then act on it, believing that he will reward us for our faithfulness. So the first thing we need was 
to have faith. Secondly, we need to diligently seek him. What does that mean? How do we diligently seek him? We diligently seek him when we turn to his word for our instruction regarding life. To diligently seek him, we must exercise the same kind of faith uh, that we show when we believe that God created the earth uh, and all that is in it, just by the word of his mouth. Can we explain? explain it? No, we can't. But we accept it by faith. Uh, so then, when we read, If ye love me, keep my commandments. Uh, that is how we please God. We keep his commandments. We understand that his commandments are his will for our life today. And when we read his word with eyes of faith, believing that he is, that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, his will becomes evident to us. He has even outlined for us which are the greatest commandments. You remember in Mark 12, a lawyer asked Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? And he answered, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. The second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. It says, on, on these hang all the law and the prophets. Everything is tied together in those two commandments. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. David Berceau calls it an obedient love-faith relationship. An obedient love-faith relationship. Through faith, we understand that God loved the world so much that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Think about that. Think about that. What does an obedient, love-faith relationship with God do with that? It causes a heart of gratitude to well up within us. Uh, and we desire to please him. I love watching little children uh, and the way they want to please. Sometimes, you all understand. <laughs> Uh, but they, they desire to please. And I would like to say that is the way we should be coming to God. We desire to please him. And this is not something that happens because of correct theology. Uh, it's something that happens because we have a relationship with Jesus Christ and by extension with God himself. His Spirit convicts us of our sins and calls us to repentance. Because we believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, we confess our sins and turn from them and we find peace. Peace with God, uh, peace within our own spirit, and oftentimes peace with those around us. Uh, his spirit comes in and takes up residence in our lives, and he becomes very real to us. We have a relationship him, with him. We love him because he first loved us. And because we love him, we desire to please him. Again, an obedient love-faith relationship. Now let's recognize that this is not something that we can cook up on our own. God plays a very important role in this relationship. You cannot have a relationship with an inanimate object. God is real. God is a person. Uh, he, he desires to uh, have a relationship with us. Now let's consider how this, love, this obedient love-faith relationship is lived out. 
I'd like to consider, first of all, God's role in that relationship and then our role. First of all, as I said earlier, he convicts us of our sins. Uh, it's his spirit that convicts us of our sin. Before we come to Christ, we are dead in trespasses and sins. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We need the work of his Holy Spirit to bring us to repentance. But when we respond in faith and obedience, believing that God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus to die, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, we are saved. We're born again. And his spirit takes up residency in our hearts. That relationship has begun. Uh, we rest in his forgiveness and peace. We delight in his presence. But that presence has a purifying effect on our, our, our lives. And at times we resist because we still want our own way. Uh, he makes us aware of areas in our lives that are not right. And our old nature rises up in rebellion. Uh, in resistance to, to his convicting spirit. But in his love he keeps drawing. Prodding us. Until we respond in obedience and confession. And we again experience that peace with God and the joy of salvation. That process of conviction, repentance, forgiveness, and rest reinforces the reality of his presence in our lives and the relationship grows stronger. Uh, and you know... This will be a pattern that will continue through all of life. Conviction, repentance, forgiveness, and rest. Uh, this whole process also develops a love within us for God as we respond in obedience to the promptings of his spirit. So first of all, he convicts us. Secondly, he guides us. Uh, as this relationship grows, we begin to look to him and his word for guidance and direction in life. And the word of God becomes important, very important, because in it we find, in many cases, direct instructions on how we are to live. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. going to look at a number of verses here. Matthew 5, 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said by them of old times, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Let's go over to verse 31 and 32. It hath been said, whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Thirty-three and thirty-four. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thine head, by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, and nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Verse thirty-eight and thirty-nine. 
<clears throat> you have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. 43. You have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that cursed you, do good to them and hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Here we have very clear instructions. No question. This is God's will for his people. Do we understand all the theological bases uh, for these commands? We may not. But does that negate what he said? No. This is what he said. And as we act by faith in obedience, we begin to see him working in ways that we can't imagine. And then we begin to understand who God is and what kind of God we're serving. Because we have that relationship with him and have learned to love him, we desire to obey him. In many cases, we may not find direct commands that apply to every situation we encounter. But we can find guiding principles as we search the scripture. Uh, and his spirit then helps us to know how to apply those principles to the situations we face. Case in point, interpersonal relationships. Uh, we're not going to find direct commands in the scripture that tells us how to respond uh, when we're having relationship problems with somebody. But there are clear principles do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the, the Lord. These are principles that help us in our relationship with each other. Uh, these are, he guides us. Thirdly, he provides for us. We pray, give us this day our daily bread. Uh, and it requires faith in God and an understanding of reality to make that request. We're so often tempted to believe that we must do it ourselves. You know, God helps those that help themselves. But you know what? That's, I think, what we would call the spirit of mammon. The spirit of mammon would help us believe, would ha have us believe that money will solve, solve all of our problems and provide for all of our needs. And if we just work a little harder and make a little more money, uh, everything will be all right. The spirit of mammon would have us turn to money for our security and significance. But only God can provide that. There is no security in money. Uh, I could hold up a $100 bill here and uh, ask, what is it? Well, reality is it's nothing but paper and ink, and someday it's going to burn up. Uh, there is nothing there. It is God that provides for our physical needs. He also provides for our social and spiritual needs. Uh, God created us as emotional and social beings, and so he instituted marriage and the home to help meet those needs. And that's, that's a sermon all of its own. He also created us as spiritual beings, and to help fill that need, he established the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, and it is in the church where we find help in trying to discern how to apply the principles of Scripture to everyday life. God understands that we need flesh and blood to fellowship with, uh, and together as we see God working in our lives, it strengthens us as individuals uh, and our relationship grows with him and with the brotherhood. He provides for us. He also chastens us. Uh, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12.
Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse 5. You have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Unto whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And we probably have all experienced that chastening of the Lord. We've, it's probably that we've all experienced the chastening of our fathers. Uh, it's not pleasant. And it isn't pleasant when the Lord chastens us. But afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruits of righteousness. Uh, his chastening is an act of love. So God's part in this relationship that we have with him, he convicts, he guides, he provides, and he chastens. Now let's look at man's part in this relationship. We defined it again as an obedient love-faith relationship. First of all, we need an active faith. Let's go over to uh, back one book to James chapter 2. James 2, starting at verse 14. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and hath not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or a sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto him, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it have not, hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God. God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works was dead? Let's stop there. Martin Luther had no time for the book of, of James. He taught that salvation is by faith alone. And he was reacting to the, uh, the Roman Catholic emphasis on works. The, the Roman Catholic dispensed salvation every Sunday morning as the people took part in the Mass. As they went to confession, they dispensed salvation. Uh, he had done all of all that they said he was to do, and yet he felt con the condemnation of God. And he was crying and praying. And uh, he read in Romans 1.17, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. When he read that, he came to understand that we cannot buy our salvation by doing good works. Our faith in, in God is what brings us salvation. And suddenly that weight was lifted for him. But he got carried away and declared that it was by faith alone. There's nothing, there's nothing on our part. But that's not what we read here in James 2. Our faith is made evident by what we do. If what we believe does not affect what we do, our faith is 
dead. Uh, you remember Abraham. Uh, he had faith that God was going to raise up Isaac there on top of that mountain. And it was credited to him for righteousness. Faith, his faith became evident by his actions. And so it requires faith on our part to follow his commands, such as love and non-resistance and so forth. So the first part, man's first part in this relationship is to have an active faith, an a, a faith that is doing something. Uh, the second part is to have an active love. Just as faith without works is dead, I would like to suggest that faith, the love for God uh, without obedience to his word is dead love as well. Uh, and this love that we're talking about here goes way beyond the warm fuzzies. You know what I mean by that. You know, just good feelings. Uh, you know, we've all heard it said that love to our children is spelled T-I-M-E. And really, that's true of any relationship, uh, including our relationship with the Lord. If we are not spending time with our Lord, uh, in devotions, in meditation, in uh, meeting with his people. Uh, where's your love? Where's your love for him? If the only time you think about your commitment to God and your obedience to his word uh, is during your devotional time, I question your sincerity. Did you hear what I said? If the only time you think about your uh, relationship with the Lord is during your devotional time. What do you have? Uh, time with his body. The church of Jesus Christ. His, ch his chosen bride. How can we say that we love Christ if we do not love his body? If the only time my love for my wife influenced what I did or said was when she was by my side, you would have every reason to question my love for her. So this heartfelt love, faith, obedience to the word of God is the evidence of an active love for him. Many of the commands of scripture have been explained away in most Protestant churches, but an obedient love-faith relationship will take these things seriously. Personal purity, swearing of oaths, not laying up treasures on earth, non-resistance, divorce and remarriage, the holy kiss, church life, the headship veiling, if ye love me, keep my commandments. And so our second part in this, uh, this relationship with our Lord is an active love. Uh, the third part is uh, to be an active partner with God in the work of his kingdom. Uh, <clears throat> we are to be active in the church active in the community, active with our finances. Uh, you know, as children of God, we have the opportunity to be part of the greatest project this world will ever know, the building of the kingdom of God. And as we participate in the building of the kingdom of God, we are expressing our love for him because that is his passion. Much of, much of Protestant Christianity ignores the New Testament teaching on the kingdom of God. But as we read through the New Testament, uh, we come to understand that personal salvation is set in the context of something much greater, far greater, the kingdom of God. Jesus' teaching on salvation and the new birth is set in the context of the kingdom of God. When we are born again, we become part of his family and we join in the family business of building the kingdom of our Father. 
he designed that we become part of a local church which serves as a local outpost of his kingdom. And that is what an, act, uh, an obedient love-faith relationship with God looks like. It's an act of faith, an act of love, and being an active partner in building his kingdom. So in summary, God's part in this relationship he convicts, he guides, he provides, he chastens. Our part is to have an active faith, a faith that believes what he tells us in his word and then moves us to obedience. Our part is to have an active love that moves us to spend time with our Lord in his word and with his people, a love that moves us to make difficult decisions when his will runs counter to what is being asked of us by the world. Uh, it is our part to be an active partner uh, with God in the work of his building, building of his kingdom. Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Earlier he had said, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way, that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, that leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Are you experiencing that obedient, love-faith relationship with Jesus Christ that he's calling us to? Or are you on the broad way of destruction. So God is calling us and uh, calling us to make that decision. It may be that you have declared your faith in Jesus Christ, but you're resisting the voice of his Holy Spirit in your life. And choices have consequences. God is calling you tonight to yield to what? you know to be right. I'm going to uh, give an invitation this evening. The invitation is to those, first of all, who have never had a relationship with Jesus Christ. And His Spirit is convicting you tonight of your sin. Tonight is time, is, is is we don't know that we have tomorrow. And so consider very carefully. This is open to those who have been resisting the, the spirit uh, in your life. And so act on that, on that relationship that Jesus Christ has, that wants to have with us. What should we sing?